I told you earlier, and I was not, uh, I was not being facetious or snarky, and I certainly was not being prideful. However, it is, I am clear that um, the Pastor Jordan who stands before you today is different than the one that you had last week. I know and I believe in my heart that I have a word for you today. That's not because I am great or powerful or something like that. It's because I have faith in the leading of the Holy Spirit and I have faith in the power of the Word of God. And so I'm going to move quickly. I'll appreciate your attention and your support because we do have somewhere that we're going today. We've been traveling and examining the story of David for many weeks together. And so I need you to make time to engage in this service and to make sure that you catch the next one because uh, we have been working for many weeks to get to right here. This week and next week is the point that we have been traveling to for all these weeks. And so we've been examining the life of David and extracting from his stories the principles of God's process for our lives. Because how many of you know that every person has a purpose, a calling, and an, and an identity? And God not only wants to affirm that in you, He wants to process you to get you ready for the thing that He has prepared for you. It's not enough to just be picked. You need to be processed. That way, when you arrive at your destination, the crown doesn't wear you. You wear it. And so I'm going to begin reading today in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I want to read to you a story about what I believe is the lowest point of David's life up until now. And I believe that because it is such a difficult and low time in his life that there is great wisdom and truth to be understood from his story. 1, cha 1 Samuel chapter 30 goes like this. Now it happened when tacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. So here's what you need to know is that for many year, months, David has been on the run from King Saul, running from hideout to hideout, living as an outlaw and a fugitive, forced to fight for his next meal every single day. He finally strikes a bargain with a pagan Philistine king. And they work out an arrangement for David to live in Philistine territory. The king gives him the village, the city of Ziklag, to make for his stronghold. How many of you have ever read that he makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies? If God can't use your friends to bless you, he'll use your enemies. Listen, y'all going to have to wake up a little bit. I come to preach today, and I need somebody to help me. We're going somewhere today. So David and his men, about 600 men, they've been on a difficult campaign. The Scripture lets us know that for months, almost two years, they've raided into enemy territory every single day. 
And the scripture says that when they would raid, they left no man or woman alive. I can tell this bunch over here has never been on a raid, and that's good, but let me try over here to see if there's any raiders over here. And I'm not talking about the Los, former Los Angeles kind. Every single day, his men went on a raid. The Philistines thought he was attacking the Israelites, but David would never do this. David went and killed other enemies that were outside the borders, and they killed them all. They said, we got to kill everybody so that the Philistines don't figure out that we're not really fighting the Israelites. Imagine every day of your life being a struggle. Imagine every day of your life being exhausted from battle, covered in blood. You've been on a difficult campaign for months and months and months. You finally return home to what is supposed to be a safe place and you find out that these evil Amalekites have come and picking up in verse 2, they've burned it with fire and they have taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. That means the children. They did not kill anyone, but they carried them away, and the Amalekites went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices, and they wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives... Ahinoam, one of the Jezreelites, and Abigail, who we read about, the widow of Nabal, they had been taken captive as well. Now David was greatly distressed, for his own men were speaking of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved. Every man was grieved for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathar the priest, one of Ahimelech's sons, he said, bring me the ephod, which is a priestly garment, a formal priestly garment that served the purpose of ministry. And Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this troop? These people have come and taken our stuff. Shall I pursue them and overtake them? God answered and said, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and recover all without fail. So David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, they came to the brook Bezor, where those who, who, who were left behind stayed. So there were some men who were so tired, they said, David, we can't go on. We're falling off of our horses. We can't, we're stumbling in the dust. We can't march anymore. We're so exhausted. And so David left them behind at the brook to rest. So now he's down to 400. But David pursued he and 400 men. Verse 11 says, Then they found an Egyptian in a field, brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate. They let him drink water. They gave him a, a piece of cake of figs and clusters of raisins, so that when the Egyptian had eaten, his strength came back to him, because he'd not had any bread and he'd not drinking any water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, Who do you belong to? Where are you from? Mr. Egyptian. 
And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We had invaded the southern area of the Cherethites, which is where Ziklag was. In the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? Let me know that David's on the hunt. And so the Egyptians said, Swear to me by God that you won't kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, jokers, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. They stole a little bit of a rager they's real happy with all these women and children that they just stole they're down there drinking but little did they know that David's sitting up on the hill that's a bad place to be for an Amalekite then David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day not a man of them escaped Except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. A bunch of camel cowards right there. You steal and rob and cheat, but you won't stay and fight. I'm already preaching. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was lacking, either small nor great sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had lost. David recovered all. Then David took the flocks and the herds that had been driven away with livestock and he said, this is David's spoil. My Lord. Now, I'm going to skip over some scripture just for the sake of time. David returns to the 200 men who were weak. And some wicked men in David's company said, they didn't go fight. They shouldn't, they shouldn't get their stuff back. And David said, no, 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 no. They're going to get their part because they are one of us. So David was generous to the ones who were too weak to stay behind. So David recovers all. I've talked to you about the principle of pain, the principle of promotion in degrees, the principle of patience, the principle of petition. Last week, we, dis we discussed the principle of positioning. But this week, we want to talk about the principle of pursuit. Bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, I ask that you use me to teach and to preach. Lord, I put my trust in you. I surrender to you. I ask that you anoint my words for the purpose of changing people's lives, to seeing the discouraged encouraged, and that our identities will not be lost. Lord, we promise you all the glory and all the honor, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. So last week when we were discussing, discussing the principle 
of positioning, we discuss that David was found himself in a test. And how you pass a test is you learn to position your heart. And so we studied in the Psalms where when David was on the run and when he's hiding in caves, what did he constantly do? When he would become overwhelmed, he would position himself and put his hope on the Lord even though nothing around him seemed optimistic or hopeful. And so I want to remind you that tests prepare you for the thing that God has prepared for you. Tests prepare, but trials prove. Tests and trials are two different things. And so we know from this journey that we've been on together through the scriptures that David has been processed for years now in the wilderness. And so as I've already discussed, he's struck in a deal where he can live behind enemy lines and he can have a stronghold in this city and village of Ziklag. So he raided basically daily, killed who knows how many people fighting the enemies of Israel. And all the while, he tells white lies to the king of the Philistines, but he never really breaks his oath or covenant with him. And he lived in Ziklag for about two years. And so when we've picked up, picked up the story here, we're right at the end of the two years that David has spent in Ziklag. And so he went from about 400 men to now he's at 600 men. And all of their wives and their babies and their dogs and their cats and their sheep and their cows and their camels and their oxen and all the stuff. I mean, 600 people can accrue and acquire quite a bit of stuff. And I find it so interesting that while he is living such a difficult life, imagine every day knowing that if I don't fight and if I don't fight hard, I won't make it to sunset. Imagine living that way for years on end and not only I have to fight but I have other men and other women and other children who they are counting on my leadership they're counting on my expertise they're counting on me to hear the instruction of the Lord or else they're not gonna make it to sunset tomorrow how you know that that's the kind of pressure that can break someone that's the kind of pressure that can make you cynical that's the kind of pressure that can make you hopeless. But I find it so interesting that after living this way for years on end, David is still finding a way to protect Israel. To me, it's magnificent, it's metaphor, and it's poetic at that, that David, who he fought a lion and a bear for just a few sheep for his father Jesse, we fast forward the tape, and David is doing the same thing, only now he's doing it for a whole nation. He's fighting lions and bears, those who would pray and seek to destroy God's people. He goes and he fights them with no help from the government, with no help from King Saul. In fact, he takes these raggedy dudes that follow him around and he turns them into soldiers to commandos, hardened warriors that it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the battle, we show up and we fight. And so this would not have been a healthy life. This life would have pressed David down. It would have ground him down. It would wear him down. It would wear me and you down 
to next to nothing. And so they've been on this long campaign and they return home exhausted from bloody battles and lengthy travel. And so the scripture tells us this, that in verse 1, the Amalekites had invaded the south, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. And so to understand the principle of pursuit, there's a couple of quick points that we want to focus on. The first principle that I want to talk to you about today is what can you carry? What can you carry? If you're going to pursue, you need to ask yourself, what can I carry? And here's what I'm talking about. Many of you will remember when we were studying King Saul right before David that the Lord had told King Saul, I want you to go and destroy all of the Amalekites. And Saul went and had a battle, but Saul failed to carry out the command of the Lord. There were many Amalekites that survived. How do you know that evil is not something you can negotiate with? Evil is something you have to wipe it out totally. Because if you leave that much, it turns into this much, to this much, to this much. And you look around in two weeks and two years and 20 years, and what was a little weed turns into a tree, and now you've got problems. And so imagine being David, and you know God had told Saul, the big, tall, handsome, swaggering, prideful king, God had told him to go kill the Amalekites, and he didn't do his job. And so now here I am. Ain't nobody know what I'm talking about. Now here I am having to fight battles that the king should have been fighting. I need to let somebody know that if you're going to pursue, if you're going to rise up and become the man or woman, to become the king and the leader that God has called you to be, you cannot fall into the trap of blaming your predecessors for what they failed to do. Because it would have been easy if I'm David to get down in the dumps to become discouraged because Saul should have dealt with them Amalekites. If Saul would have just done his job, I wouldn't be having to deal with this. Oh, I can tell I'm on a nerve. If mom and daddy would have just done right, then I could have went to college or I would have had a better job. There's a joke where I'm from, and there's a, there's a real person who said this where I'm from. He said, if my mom and daddy would have done right, I'd be living on the lake with a Corvette in the driveway. <laughs> and can I just say that this dude, he's, a, he's white trash, okay? He's blaming his mom and his daddy for living in a single wide in the back of the holler. If they would have just done right, I'd have been on the lake with a Corvette. You need to hear me, friend. A real leader, a real king, doesn't point their finger at who was and what should have been. A real king says, they might should have dealt with the Amalekites, but guess what? I'm going to pick myself up, I'm going to stand up, because I don't mind to carry something that wasn't mine to carry to start with. Can I get some help, some testimony in here from some people who have said, mom and daddy didn't help me, but I went to college anyway. My teachers didn't really help me, but I graduated high school anyway. They wanted me down on the corner, but I said no to that. I'm going to go get a job and go on with my life. Mom and daddy got divorced 14 times, but I'm going to stay married. Mom and daddy abandoned us kids, but I'm not going to abandon my kids. I'm going to pick myself up, and I'm going to carry something that I didn't create. 
There's some of you on the job that your breakthrough, everybody's waiting on you to carry something you didn't create. There's promotion, there is promotion around the corner for somebody if you will just pick up and carry something that you didn't create and say, I didn't make the problem, but I can fix it. I didn't create the problem, but I can solve it. You say, well, I don't know that that's fair. What's fair got to do with it? I'll wait if you want to pull out your Bible and find me some verses that talk about fair. Let me help you. God is not fair, but he is just. Here's what that means. That means that life ain't fair. The world ain't fair. And when you come into this world, you don't always get dealt the winning hand. But because God is just, if you live his way and walk with him, God in you and God through you will take your losing hand and cause it to turn into a winning hand every time because God makes leaders he makes men and women kings and queens that we can carry things that we didn't create and when I become discouraged by this weight and this burden that I didn't do this I didn't make the bad decisions I didn't fall down on the job why am I having to do this when I become discouraged with this reality I point my attention towards heaven Because we might be kings, but there is the king, the king of kings and lord of lords, that he didn't make the problem of sin. He didn't break creation. He didn't break covenant. He said, y'all down there made a problem, but I will come down and I will carry something I didn't create. Just because I didn't make a mess don't mean that I can't fix it. I need to tell somebody today, you keep waiting on a paycheck when really you need to realize that you were made to solve problems that you didn't create. There's answers in you. There's ideas in you. There's words in you that you didn't know were there. And when you realize who you are and quit bemoaning the past and say, you know what, there might have been a king who failed, but guess what? When I was just a 16-year-old boy watching the sheep, the prophet called me out by name. He poured the oil on my head and he said, there's a day coming where you, David, are going to be the king. There's somebody in here, God has made you, formed you, known you, processed you. There is a king anointed on your life quit bemoaning the past quit blame shifting pick yourself up don't wait on a crown start living and acting like a king carry a problem that you didn't create because the issue is not what should have Moses done he's the first guy to encounter the the Amalekites The issue is not what Joshua should have done or Samson or Saul. The issue is what will you do? See, when God gave you free will, he didn't make you the chooser for someone else. He did make you the chooser for yourself. The superpower that we all were born with is the power to choose. Now, it doesn't matter where you find yourself or how you got there. What matters is what will you choose. The issue is not what should they have done. It's what will I do. Now, 
The second thing I want to talk to you about, the principle of pursuit, comes from verse 6. That David himself was greatly distressed, for his own men spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, because every man had lost his sons and his daughters. If you want to be a king, you have to be able to experience your own pain and somebody else's too. Oh boy. Okay, we'll push a little further. Practice makes permanent. Have you heard that? Practice makes perfect growing up. We all heard that, right? But I think we, most of us now have heard and understood that practice doesn't make you perfect, but it does make you permanent. And so when you're David and you've got your own problems and your own pain, that arguably any of the things that David had experienced in his own life would be crippling and debilitating for most people. So he's got his own issues, but then we give him 400 other people that they are broken and busted and disgusted, and they got all their problems. Guess what? All that pain is the perfect processing ground for what it means and what it looks like to be a king. And so when God lets you experience the projections and the difficulties from other people, that's a great time and a great place for you to practice what will be made permanent when the real difficulty comes. And so a leader needs to know and understand this. Imagine being David when your own men turn on you. Here's how I would feel. You sorry suckers wouldn't have nothing if it wasn't for me. I didn't go get you. You came to me. I was on the run by myself. Y'all are the ones that heard I was on the run and come met me in the caves. So don't be blaming me. You're the one that came to me. And we have fought and fought and I've bled right alongside you. I've been wounded the same as you've been wounded. And yet your life has got better and mine is pretty much the same. I'm still a fugitive from justice. And you boys are running around with, you didn't have nothing, and now you've got animals and families. You owe me. If I was also David, this most likely is what I would have felt once the indignation died away. Why are you stoning me? They took my family too. I miss my wives the same as you miss yours. Look at your neighbor and say, he misses his wives. <laughs> this joker, Lord help him. He don't know what he's doing, wives. <laughs> Something that every leader needs to understand is that people in pain project. As a species, we do not handle pain well. And when that pain comes into my life, one of my most immediate coping mechanisms is to try to project or place that pain on someone else. And so here's what we have to understand is that when we lead, pain projection is really not personal. People 
when you lead, they'll blame you, they'll curse you, they'll wound you with their words behind your back, they'll talk about you, they'll blame you for things that you didn't do. And they do not care that you yourself are in pain. All they care about is their pain. I need to let somebody in here know today that you've been upset because people in your family have projected their pain onto you. People in the workplace have projected their blame and their pain onto you. It's your fault that it didn't get done. It's your fault that the boss didn't pick me. But I need to let some leaders know and some kings know that when you're called, there's a grace for you to carry the pain that you didn't create because it ain't personal. If we exchange you for a different leader, they'd blame that guy. Because that's what broken, hurting, distressed people in pain do is they project. But any leader who has led knows that when you do that to me, it feels personal. Because when you're a leader and I had to get up before you to make the plan for the day. I had to stay up late to make sure that the food was in order so that everybody could have breakfast tomorrow. Nobody works harder than the leader. The privilege and the position never outweighs the demand. And so every leader, they know the feeling that at some point, I'm doing this for you. I got other things I'd like to do with my time sometimes than study ancient Hebrew texts and to study Greek. You won't even learn Spanish. They won't even learn Spanish. And you want me to learn Greek and Hebrew. You won't go read a new thriller novel, but you want me to read Isaiah and Ezekiel. At some point, you got to go, God, I do this because I love you, and I do this because I love the people. And so when people attack you, that feels personal. Please hear me, dear friends and leaders. Don't stuff your pain. Because feelings buried alive don't die. And so when the people wound you and they wound you and they wound you and you just say, I'm just going to stuff it. I'm just going to stuff it. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. You wind up despising the people who you once loved. There's some marriages in here that you've been stuffing and stuffing and stuffing and you've started to despise the one that you started to love. Please hear me, dear friends. When the pain is real, when you're in pain, and I'm in pain, they're in pain, we're in pain, everybody's in pain, we're in distress, and we're in misery. You need to hear me, King. What you do next will make you or break you. Now we're talking about trials. Pay close attention. If tests prepare and trials prove, then... You pass a test, but you endure a trial. And if that is true, then a test is about what you know. But if you're going to endure a trial, a trial is really about not what you know, but who you are. Oh, see, there's some people going through trials right now that you just got blessed because when you are David, I was rejected by my father. I was abandoned by my mama. 
I was rejected by my brothers. I killed giants, and I was still rejected by my king. I ducked spears and played music for a king, and he rejected me and hunted me. When I went on the run, my best friend said he loved me, but he stayed with his daddy who wanted me dead instead of running with me. I had to leave my wife behind, my harp behind, my sword behind. I had to leave behind all of my successes. I had to leave behind the men that I led who were professional soldiers and warriors. I had to leave them behind, and I had to go it alone. And while I endured in the wilderness, I endured blood and abandonment. I endured the insults of rich businessmen who thought they were better than me. I endured, and I endured, and I endured. Hanging on to that one time when I was 16, a prophet named Samuel stood at attention when I entered the room. And he poured a horn of oil on my head. And he declared in the presence of my family that there was coming a day when this little shepherd boy would rule over God's people. That promise feels like a dream. Because from then until now, I have endured every kind of pain that you can imagine. I've had to fight for food and had to fight for water. I've had to fight for shade, and I've had to hide in caves like an animal. I've had to dig the shrapnel of war out of my body and be stitched up by my, by my men who didn't know what they were doing with a needle. I know the pain of hunger and the despair of thirst. I wonder, is there anybody in here that you have endured and endured and endured? And those dreams and those promises that God gave you seem so far away. And then you finally reach some equilibrium in your life. I finally got this little foothold behind, in, behind enemy lines. And then my men turn on me. They're wanting to kill me. It's one thing for people to say, I'm mad at you. It's another thing when they got a rock in their hand and they're wanting to smash your brains out in the dust. The question when you arrive to that point in the story is not what do you know. It's who are you? Who are you? If you want to pass the trials of life, there comes a time when the playbook has to be set aside and you have to look in the mirror and decide, am I going to be a coward? Am I going to quit? Or am I going to be a king? There comes a time when it doesn't matter what they say, it matters what you say. There comes a time when it doesn't matter what they believe, it matters what you believe. There comes a time when you can't count on somebody else to encourage you. There comes a time in a king's life where I have to turn away from the men and I have to turn away from the pain and I have to remind myself of this that caves have taught me, hunger has taught me, blood has taught me this one thing. 
that you are the light of my life. You are the lifter of my head. You are the lover of my soul. Your name is a strong tower, and when I run into it, I am saved. You are a shield around me. Your shadow is where I find my refuge, and you, O oh God, are my shepherd, and I shall never want. You make my hands ready for battle, and you train my fingers for war. You cause me, God, to defeat a troop and to leap over a wall. Oh, ain't nobody hearing me. You have to encourage yourself in the Lord and remind yourself that even when I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he was there with me. Oh, and when I made my bed down in Hades, he was there with me too. You all might leave me, but my God who called me will keep me. He will never, ever, ever leave my side. There comes a time in a king's life when the trial gets hot and when the trial gets hard, you got to pick yourself up and look in the mirror and talk to the king on the inside. I may not have a crown. I may not have a castle. I may not have a Cadillac, but I know this. I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all, all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and forever. I ain't done yet. I need to tell somebody, the enemy and no man on this planet can curse what God has blessed because he who is in me is greater than he that is in the world. I'm blessed because I'm the head and not the tail. I'm above and not beneath. I'm blessed in the city and I'm blessed out in the country. Hey, can't nobody take from me what God has given to me. I would have perished had I not believed. I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. When you want to endure a trial, you have to learn to encourage yourself in the Lord. Because when you're going through the trial, and we're blinded by pain. Here's what you have to remember. Those that have gone before you, those that follow behind, even the Lord in heaven is standing on the edge of heaven looking down, and they're watching you. They know what the people think. They know what King Saul thinks. They know what your daddy thinks. But they're looking down at you saying, what do you think? What do you believe? What are you going to do? 
Don't wait on a crown. Don't wait on a castle. And don't wait on a Cadillac. Pick yourself up and be the king that God called you to be. If my prayer teams will come and if my band will please come. Now, for us to live this out, we need some understanding and perspective. Sorry, I got to change gears a little bit. See, I didn't make that up. Trials are about who you are. When David goes to the Lord and says, Lord, should I go? Should I pursue? Here's some of what he's saying. Is there any hope? Is there any chance of success? Because if there is, I don't see it. When the Lord says pursue, and David stands up, puts on his sword belt, grabs his helmet, and gets his shield and throws a leg over his pony, here's what he's demonstrating. Even when you don't call me a king, I'm still going to act like one. Because here's what you need to know about your identity. The enemy will attack you with discouragement. Now hear me, discouragement is not a feeling. Discouragement is not a feeling. Discouragement is an attack. The feeling comes after. The enemy with discouragement, he's whispering in your ear, you're not a king, you're not a king, you're not a king, you're not a king. The second you agree with him, you just lost. When discouragement from the enemy comes, kings understand this. It doesn't matter what the enemy says. I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord because him who called me will keep me. When you understand not what your title says you are, not what your bank account says you are, when you understand who God says that you are, you find this. You will risk your life and you will give your life away for people who curse you. I know that you boys are tired. You can rest by the water. But see, I'm a king. I love you boys. I'm not going to cut you out. But see, I don't have a choice but to keep on and to carry on. When people don't see you and they don't acknowledge the gift in you, when they don't speak greatness and the prophecy they give you is not always encouraging, a king knows, I can't help it anymore. This is who I am. I've lived in this wilderness and I've been tested and tested and tested. God's been putting it to me. Will you be a king? Will you be a king when no one's looking? Will you be a king when another man's wife comes around? Will you be a king when it comes to leading your men? Test, test, test. And then the trial comes. 
And here is the great gift that comes with enduring a trial. When you endure, when you recognize, identify, and agree with God's identity for your life, guess what? You hold within you an eternal treasure that this is why I am alive. A tree is going to tree. A bird is going to bird. A dog is going to dog. The flowers are going to flower. Cows will cow. Parrots will parrot. But God made me to be a king. And I'll king in the dark. And I will king in the light. I'll king when nobody's looking. And when they bring the presence of the Lord back into Jerusalem and a whole nation is watching. I will become even more undignified than this because I was kinging and dancing and singing back there when wasn't nobody watching. You put me in front of a nation, I'm going to do the same thing because I learned back in the desert who I really was. And guess what, friend? When you agree with God's promise over your life and you seize it, nobody can take it from you. We'll say it again. Nobody, nothing they say or do can take it from you. And when you stay true to that identity, you will know peace, prosperity, and fulfillment all the days of your life because you chose a long time ago who I'm going to be. Now, I wonder, is there anybody in this room who will stand on your feet with me and help me say, God, give me the strength to endure this trial. Come on, if that's you and you say, man, I'm in the trial, I'm in the push, I'm in the pressure, I got people talking about me, I got people turning on me. Don't look at Jordan. Look up to God, the one who called you. And say, God, I need you to watch for me. I need you to keep me. And I need you to give me strength. You know, it doesn't have to be a yell or a shout. You can whisper, God, I need you. Now, I want to go one step further. If you're in here today and you say, I really need someone to agree with me preacher man I am in the middle of it I am fighting a real battle here for life and death I need somebody to pray with me if that's you in here today with every head bowed and every eye closed nobody's looking around nobody's taking your picture nobody's writing your name down but if you're in here today and you say man I need some encouragement I do I need some help I need someone to pray with me and to lift me up our prayer teams are right here in the front I'm going to release you in about five seconds if you say man I am fighting for my life here then you run down here and you let us pray with you let us join arms with you and let us pray over you that you will be the man or woman that God has called you to be if that's you you get ready to move right down here five four 
three, two, one. Come on, if that's you, come right now. Don't miss this moment. If you say, I'm in the fight, I'm in the trial, I'm hurting, I need somebody to pray with me. I need somebody to help me encourage myself. If that's you, you come down right here and let us pray with you.